Judges chapter 7 this evening. The book of Judges chapter 7. And as we go through the night, ask the Lord to keep my voice going. I'm getting over a sinus infection. But it goes along with the message. Because the message tonight is that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. In fact, I want to begin by reminding us of this. Advertising keeps selling images. We live in an image-obsessed culture. Perhaps that's why we have a trouble understanding the Bible. The Bible is not obsessed as we are with our image. God usually calls servants, not heroes, and many of his servants simply don't fit the mold that Madison Avenue has taught us to prize. Gideon is a case in point. We were introduced to him last week. He's not your conventional hero. Instead, he and Israel are presented in their weakness. We were reminded of this last week back in chapter 6, verse 11, when he was hiding from the Midianites while he was threshing wheat in a wine press. That's not where you usually thresh, thresh wheat. And then we saw when God wanted to commission him to lead Israel and to deliver them. He says in verse 15, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my family. And then in chapter 7, we're introduced to Gideon again, and his men got up the next morning and were headed to the spring of Herod, where the Midianites were camped north of them for this confrontation. And the spring where they were camped literally means the, the spring of trembling. And that's probably what they were all doing, was trembling as they were there. So God certainly does not present Gideon uh, in a condition, or Israel in a condition of strength, but of weakness. Now, I want to define weakness, though, from a biblical viewpoint. Because many times when we talk about weakness and when we use and see the word weakness in the Bible, a lot of people misconstrue it as, you know, we're just this thing of jello, you know, and we just sort of throw ourselves out there and God just sort of picks us up and, you know, and we're just weak. That's not what the word means. Here's what the word means. Weakness in the Bible is defined as being stripped of all human resources and forced to lean upon God alone. That's what weakness is. There are times in our life where God takes away all the safety nets, takes away all the security systems, takes away all the other human resources to where we are, where we find that God is all that we have and we learn that God is all that we need. That's what it means to be weak. You see, being weak in the Bible is anything but weak. It's actually strong. That's why Paul said, God's power is made perfect in my weakness, for whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The reason Paul could say that is because if we're stripped from all of our human resources, and we're not relying on anything else but God, then we're totally focused on God. And when you and I are totally focused and laser beamed on God, we're going to be awfully strong because we're going to be living totally in the strength of God, not in our own strength or in somebody else's strength. That's why you hear verses like these in the Bible. 
But I am afraid, Paul said, that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his treachery, your minds may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That somehow we'll go through life and and we'll be distracted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all they want to do is get us distracted from keeping our focus, our laser beam, on Christ. Because Satan knows if we can keep our eyes on Christ then we will have all the strength that we need to meet all of life's demands. That's why the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, on that great passage of perseverance and endurance through life, says the key is keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the term that he uses there means to put our eyes or pull our eyes away from everyone and everything else and put them squarely on Jesus alone. Jesus even sort of, talked about this same principle in the Gospels when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things will take care of themselves. That we need to just narrow the focus of our life and learn to be weak in a biblical sense. Too often we go through life even as Christians where we say we're trusting God. We say we're putting God first and we're totally relying on God to live life. And yet we know if we're honest, we're relying on support systems and resources of our own, of others and whatever. And we're not really relying on God at all. We don't know what it's like to truly live by faith and to live at a a level where God is all that we have. Therefore, we're learning he's all that I need. We think we need all these other things. And that's why God sometimes in our life will kick the props out from under us so that we can learn that there's a strength, a power, and a level of living that we would never know as long as we had all these other support systems. I think Peter's a good example of that. When he walked on water, he had to totally let all the support systems that he knew go And had to totally rely on the Lord to get out of that boat and walk on water. But because he did, he was able to do something that I don't think any other human being ever did. And so Jesus was showing us there in a sense that this is what life could be like if you totally rely on me. Because your resources, my resources are limited. Other people have limitations. The world has its limitations. It can only supply so much. But the Bible says, with my God, all things are possible. The Bible says nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so we need to learn the importance of living, in a sense, in a weakened condition. Instead of relying on our own resources and where we are totally leaning in to God. That's why you come to chapter 7 of Judges and you see the necessity of weakness from God's point of view. God insists on the necessity of weakness. Why? Because of the tendency of God's people to glorify their own efforts, to trust in their own proven methods, to credit their own contributions, to think well of their cleverness. God frequently insists that his people be reduced to utter helplessness so that they may recognize that their deliverance can only be chalked up to God's power and mercy. Listen to the rest of these verses in chapter 7. Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and his men got up the next morning and encamped near the spring of Herod. The Midianites were camped north of them near the hill of Moreh in the valley. Don't miss verse 2. It's the key verse. The Lord said to Gideon, 
you have too many men for me to hand Midian over to you. And here's why, God said. Israel might brag our own strength has delivered us. Does not chapter 7, verse 2 of Judges speak to us? Does it not tell us that there is a tendency in God's people to steal his praise? Does it not teach us that sometimes he cannot trust us with his work unless we realize how inadequate we are to do it? That's why the necessity of weakness. I want you to keep your finger there in Judges chapter 7 and go over to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. Because this principle is found throughout the scriptures, and I just want to share some of these with you tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Now we have such confidence in God through Christ. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as if it were coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Don't miss that. Paul didn't feel adequate. But he also didn't shrink back from the responsibility that God gave him because he knew that whatever God called us to, God will equip us for, and the adequacy will come from God, not from me. It's not on me. But I don't come into it thinking I'm adequate. Those aren't the people that God uses. There must be the necessity of weakness on our part. And then go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Where Paul says, that's why we have this wonderful treasure of eternal life contained in clay jars. Which is a description of our human, earthly, deteriorating body. Why does God put eternal life in such fragile clay jars? Here's why. So that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. It's so that we can learn to depend upon a power outside. If, if we had all the power, if we were so powerful, if we could meet all of life's demands, we wouldn't need God. And over and over again, the Bible teaches us the importance of recognizing how inadequate we are. To do the work of God. In fact, one other passage while we're in the New Testament. And this passage may explain why God frequently chooses such unlikely instruments. Go back to the book of 1 Corinthians. Just back one book. To 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The great reminder from Paul here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in His presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We could go on. 
But this again shows us the necessity of weakness in serving and ministering for God. I just want to take a moment here as a pastor and say, the, the, the people that God's looking for are the people who say, I'm weak. I'm inadequate. In fact, as a pastor for 25 years, I shrink back from folks that can come into a local church and basically come in the front door and go, I'm here. I'm super saint and you ought to be glad I'm here. You don't know how spiritual I am and how much I can help the body here. I'm so adequate. I'm so strong. And I'm like, whoa. Because I, I think that flies in the face of what the Bible teaches here. That, that God's power truly is embodied in people like a Gideon. And people like Jeff Royce and Maybe people like you that we know how weak we are. We know how inadequate we are that we could not do what we do without God showing up and without the power of God flowing through our lives. We cannot do this on our own. It's all God. There's something powerful about that. Because then I don't have to think, well, here's the level where Jeff Royce can go. No, I can just say, God... You take it to your level, way past where I could go. And there's something exciting and invigorating about being part of what God is doing and be connected to a God where the sky's the limit. I'm not limited by my limitations and fears and weakness and inadequacies. I let God define my life and let him take me where he wants to take me. Paul says, Who is weak? And I'm not weak. If I must boast, I will boast about the things that show my weakness. 2 Corinthians 11.30. And he was talking to the Corinthians, this group of Greeks that prized having power and showing power and showing strength and having all the answers and never acting like I, I don't have it all together. And Paul comes to the Corinthians and says, I'm boasting about my weakness. Because the clearest way to show other people God is when God is just totally taking over our lives and living through us. When it's not anything of us, it's all of him. That's when the life of God and the reality of God in our lives can truly shine through. That's why Paul was so effective. Because Paul was able, because of his weakness and inadequacy, to get out of the way and get out of God's way and let God take over and just do it and take Paul and take the gospel and change lives to a level that we've probably not seen since Paul. But it's possible because the power is still there. I want to go back to Judges chapter 7 because I love this story. We, we do need to get to it tonight. So the Lord said to Gideon in verse 2, You have too many men for me to hand Midian over to you. Israel might brag, our own strength has delivered us. So announce to the men, whoever is shaking with fear may turn around and leave. There you go. 22,000 men went home. 10,000 men remained. 
Now, remember too, and we're going to get to this, they were going to go up against the Midianite army in the hundreds of thousands. So even 32,000 was not a big force. But the Lord spoke to Gideon again and said, there's still too many men. Can you see Gideon's eyes at this point? I mean, the guy's already shaking in his boots. He's afraid. He's, he need, needs that constant reassurance we talked about last week and encouragement. And now God is just purposely thinning the ranks. Bring them down to the water and I will thin the ranks some more, God says. When I say this one should go, pick him to go. When I say this one should not go, do not take him. So he brought the men down to the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, separate those who lap the water as a dog laps from those who kneel to drink. 300 men lapped. The rest of the men kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will deliver the whole army and I will hand Midian over to you. The rest of the men should go home. Now there are people who write pages after pages of why God picked the guys who lapped the water over guys. Can I just tell you, I don't see it in the text at all. I think it was just a way for God to whittle it down and narrow it down to 300. 300. And God says with 300 men, I'm going to turn the whole Midianite army over to you. And here's why. Because when you are victorious... Nobody's going to be able to look around in Israel and nobody's going to be able to look around at the other nations and say, well, Israel won because they were more powerful than the Midianites. They're going to have to conclude that it was Israel's God who gave them the victory. That's why God does what he does so that people can come to know God and the power that God can give us to live life. So the men were chosen. They took supplies and their trumpets Gideon sent all the men of Israel back to their homes. He kept only 300 men. And the Midianites were camped down below in the valley. 300. Reminds me of the movie out the other year, you know, 300. This was a different 300. Now we've talked about God's strength being made perfect in our weakness and about the necessity of weakness. But I want to talk about the encouragement in weakness. We saw that last week, but I want to bring it up again because it's a theme that runs throughout God dealing with Gideon. Here is God's assurance. Gideon is a most unheroic hero. God orders him in verse 9 of chapter 7 to attack Midian's army, and yet God offers him a preliminary option. Notice what God says. That night the Lord said to Gideon, get up, attack the camp, for I am handing it over to you. But God says, but if you are afraid to attack, afraid, Gideon, certainly, absolutely he's afraid. He's not your conventional crusty man of steel. No. So here's what God says. So if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant. Over here, listen to what they are saying. Then you will be brave and attack the camp. So he went down with his servant to where the sentries were guarding the camp. The Midianites, Amalekites, the people from the east. Notice, they covered the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels could not be counted. They were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. Mismatch. You think David and Goliath was a mismatch? This is a mismatch. Can we just be reminded that God loves mismatches? There may be something in your life that it's too big. 
I can't deal with it. I can't overcome it. It's an obstacle. I just... God loves those kind of mismatches. Because when God gets involved, it doesn't matter how big that thing is or what that thing is. The only thing that should matter is how big is our God? How great is our God? Not how big is the obstacle. When Gideon arrived, verse 13, he heard a man telling another man about a dream he had. The man said, look, I had a dream. I saw a stale cake of barley bread rolling into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent so hard it knocked it over and turned it upside down and the tent just collapsed. The other man said, without a doubt, this symbolizes the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God is handing Midian and all the army over to him. Now, I don't get that, but this guy did. And yet that was all the encouragement that Gideon needed. Because notice verse 15, when he heard the report, he goes back and he says to the army, get up for the Lord is handing Midianite over to us. Now, a couple of things. First of all, notice the irony in the the channel that God used to encourage Gideon. God used a Midianite private in the army to encourage Gideon. And it reminds us that we've got to be careful not to just look for God's encouragement from this direction or that direction. God's words of encouragement can come from all different directions and many times from places we don't expect. Gideon would have never expected that somehow God was going to use a private in the Midianite army to encourage him that night, but he did. And God was right. His hands were strengthened because that's exactly what God wants to do. Yes, We are weak. Yes, we are inadequate. But God comes along and encourages us in our weakness and strengthens our hands in order to do battle and to rise up to do what he's calling us to do. And I love the response of Gideon too, not only to go back and tell the army, let's get up, let's do what God's called us to do. But notice, don't miss this in verse 15, when Gideon heard the report of the dream and its interpretation, he praised God in the Hebrew He took time to worship. It's a reminder to me, Jeff Royce, that when God encourages me, I need to take time to praise him and worship him for the encouragement that he gives me. Too often, God's encouragement in my life just, it's almost like I take it for granted. And I love the fact that when God encouraged Gideon, he said, I got to stop for a moment. The the battle's important, and God's calling us to that, but but I need to stop and thank God for that encouragement he just gave. Thank you, God. And he took time to praise and worship God. Listen, the Lord knows the fears of his servants. He knows how scared we can be in our various circumstances. Yet God is not so strict as to be harsh when we tremble. He does not ridicule us for our fears. He never mocks us because we are fragile. Christ takes uncertain and fearful people and strengthens their hands in the oddest ways and makes them able to stand for him in school or at home or at work. God is in the business of making us strong and making us able to stand. In fact, Paul says in Romans, the Lord is able to make us stand. Romans 14 verse 4. The book of Jude tells us that God is able to make us stand. God is in the business 
of taking his children and his servants and lifting them up and causing them to stand. God wants us to stand. And when we've been knocked down or when we've fallen down, God wants to get us back up and get us to stand again. That's why he tells us, stand against the devil when he attacks. Resist him, firm in the faith. That's why Paul said to the Ephesians, stand in the power of God and in his might. God wants you to stand tonight. And if you've fallen or you've been knocked down, God wants to lift you up. He wants to encourage you. And then look at verse 16. Talk about an unconventional God. Not only does God whittle the army down to 300, but he really doesn't give this 300 any weapons of military force at all. Notice, he divides the 300 men into three units. He gave them all trumpets and empty jars with torches inside them. Wow. That's intimidating. He says to them, watch me and do as I do. And I'm sure the rest of those guys were like, yeah, I got to see this. We're going to beat thousands of Midianites with trumpets and jars and torches. I can't wait to see this. When I and all who were with me blow our trumpets, you also blow your trumpets all around the camp. Then say, for the Lord and for Gideon. (coughs) Excuse me. So Gideon took a hundred men to the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Which, just for sake of information, if you're interested, the middle watch was ten to two. There were three watches in the night that soldiers would go by. Six to ten was the first watch. Ten to two in the morning was the second. And two in the morning till six in the morning was the third. So this was the middle watch from ten till two. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars they were carrying. I mean, can you imagine? Here they are on horses, breaking jars, blowing trumpets. A mighty fighting force. They held the torches in their left hand, the trumpets in their right. Here they come. And they yell, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They stood in order all around the camp. And notice, the whole army ran away. They shouted as they scrambled away. When the 300 men blew their trumpets, the Lord caused the Midianites to attack one another with their swords throughout the camp. And the army fled. And we could read on. Basically, Israel won. But Israel needed to recognize why they won. They didn't win because they outsmarted the Midianites. They didn't win because of their vast military strength and power. They didn't win because of their great numbers. They won because they trusted God. That's why they won. And that same thing is true today. You and I win in life when we simply trust and completely rely on God. And God knows we're weak. In fact, God wants us to be weak in the sense that he doesn't want us to rely on human resources. He wants us to learn to rely totally on him. He knows we're inadequate for the things that he's calling us to and the privileges he's giving us. But he's going to, as Paul said, make us adequate. And when we still need encouragement, as Gideon did, he will send encouragement. And I want to just talk a moment about the weapons here. 
I want you to remember these weapons that were used. And I want you to go over again to the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. Because there's a sort of a neat passage over there that sort of parallels this for us in our day. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because just like the way the city of Jericho's walls went down when they just marched around and blew trumpets. And then when Gideon blew trumpets and cracked jars and lit torches. Victory doesn't come sometimes the way we think it's going to come. But it comes. It comes God's way. Not necessarily our way. And here's what we need to be reminded of today. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Just as it was probably strange for the Israelites to use jars and torches and trumpets to defeat the Midianites, notice Paul says to the Corinthians, for though we live as human beings, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God for staring down strongholds. See, God says, you can rely on your human resources and human weapons to deal with life. But as a Christian, we have a whole arsenal opened up to us that's way more powerful, way more effective than anything we could grab, any tool we could grab to cope with anything here on earth, much more effective. We've got things like the Word of God in our hands and in our homes, and hopefully in our hearts. We've got prayer We've got the body of Christ. We've got so many spiritual weapons that God has put into our hands. And God says if we just use these weapons that God has given us, these spiritual weapons that are more powerful than anything on earth, we can begin to see victory in our life. And the things that have stranglehold our lives and, and, and been a stronghold in our lives can be brought down Through these strong weapons that God gives us. They might not be the weapons that the world says are strong. But you and I all know if we've walked with the Lord any length of time. That things like prayer. That's powerful. That's powerful. The word of God says of itself. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword can pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, get into the joints and marrow. The Word of God can get into a place in people's lives that nothing else can get to. It's powerful. The church is powerful when walking in the light. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's power there. There's power in walking in the Holy Spirit. Power. These are the weapons that God gives us. And these are the weapons that we need to use. They may not be the ones that the world says we should use, but they are much more powerful and effective in the fights and battles that we will find ourselves in, in life. Over to chapter 8 of Judges. I do have to get through the book of Judges this semester. I really do. And next week, I want to introduce us to Bramble Man. A man that was called a thornbush, Abimelech. Wait till you come back next week and hear about this guy. He's something. In chapter 8, here's where I want to go. We've talked about necessary weakness up to this point. The kind of weakness that says no to the human resources 
and depends on God alone. But I want us to point out in this context that there's also a detrimental weakness. The detrimental weakness is when God's people are the cause of weakness because of our division, our infighting, our fragmentation. And remember I said at the beginning of our study of Judges that one of the things that we see is one of the reasons why the book of Judges is a period of spiritual decline and deterioration in the nation of Israel is not only because the people weren't hooked up with God in the right way, they weren't hooked up with each other in the right way. That's why when you get to chapter 8, it sort of takes us back after we see this great victory that God brought with, with 300 that the Ephraimites say to Gideon, why have you done such a thing to us? You did not summon us when you went to fight the Midianites. Ephraim was a prima donna among the tribes of Israel. In a sense, what they're saying to Gideon is, Gideon, who do you think you are initiating hostilities with Midian without consulting us? It is nothing but Ephraim's pride that fuels this dispute. But I love how Gideon handles it. He handles it in a very spiritually mature way. They argued vehemently with him, but he said to them, Now what have I accomplished compared to you? Even Ephraim's leftover grapes are better quality than a Bezer's harvest. It was to you that God handed over the Midianite generals, Oreb and Zeb. What did I accomplish to rival that? Basically, he's just saying, I, I couldn't have done it without you guys. He's not apologizing for going ahead and obeying the Lord and going into battle and not consulting them first. But he does recognize their participation in what took place. I mean, he could have let him have it. But Gideon understood that if, if God's people are going to continue to, to try to turn this thing around spiritually, they've not only got to be strong spiritually in God, but they've got to get together with each other. They can't continue to splinter off and, and be divided and have all this disunity amongst them. And so he was trying to be a peacemaker here and not allow something to escalate to where there were to bring this rift between the Ephraimites and the Abizarites for centuries. And then he met two other tribes down in verses 4 through 9. To make a long story short, the, these men had been fighting the Midianites. They were exhausted. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were in need of some sustenance. And he says to the men of one tribe in verse 5, Give some loaves of bread to the men who are following me because they are exhausted. And notice the officials of this tribe say, You've not yet overpowered them, so why should we give bread to your army? In other words, we don't know how this is going to go yet. And, and what if they end up beating you guys, then they're going to come back on us. So we're just going to wait and see how this goes, and then we'll support the winner. Trying to sit the fence, trying to be politically correct, instead of... And these are the people of God. These are the Israelites. They're not on board with what God is doing. They should, by faith, have sided with Gideon because that's where God was. That's where God was going. But no, they wanted to see how it was turning. It shows the lack of faith and the lack of spiritual depth at all that was in Israel at this time. And it reminds us 
of two things in our circles today that can also mess up what God wants to do in a body of people. Sometimes we are concerned for our own status and position like Ephraim. Sometimes we are concerned with our own security like the other tribes. And a passion for recognition and safety will destroy the cohesion Israel needed and it will destroy the cohesion that the church needs today. The people of God were a great disappointment to Gideon. It's what he learns in chapter 8. That's what we're reminded of in Judges chapter 8. But I want to say this, as some of you who know my story, if you don't know that the people of God can be a great disappointment, you may not survive in the church very long. God's people will disappoint you. I will disappoint you. Don't allow God's people to disillusion you. At least be prepared for it. And watch out that it is not your passion for status or your pursuit of security that disturbs the unity and saps the energy of the church. Though Christ's power is most fully displayed when his people are weak, we must take care that we ourselves are not the cause of such weakness. Because there's a necessary weakness and then there's a detrimental weakness. Being weakened from within because we can't simply get on the same page and be moving together in unity towards a common purpose and a common goal. And this was what was happening in the nation of Israel at this time as well. I want to end our study of Gideon on this note and it's not a good one. But as I said, as we began the study of Judges, the book of Judges is not a book you study in the Bible to get an ooey-gooey good feeling. It's a book dealing with the darkest days of Israel's history. But it reminds us, as I've said all along through our study, that God is still at work in the darkest days. God is at work in the darkest days of our lives, in the darkest days of our relatives and families and friends' lives. God is not the kind of God that needs us, as we've said over and over, to pour Clorox and spray Lysol on the mess of our lives before he gets involved. He gets right involved with the mess of our lives, and if we allow him to, he can make something very beautiful out of the mess of our lives. That's the message of Judges. The sad thing is that Gideon doesn't end well. Which reminds me, it's tough to end well. I've known many a Christian who started off the Christian life like gangbusters. Man, the first couple of weeks or months or years that they came to know the Lord, man, they were on fire for God. I mean, you couldn't keep them away from church. They were reading and studying their Bible. They were growing. They were witnessing. They were praying. They, phew. And yet they were like this shooting star that just burned real brightly for a while and then just, boom. And they're what I call in my life the used-to-be's. They used to read their Bible. They used to pray. They used to go to church. They're not ending well. And I've always said the cool encouragement with God is that sometimes you and I didn't start life off very good or we didn't start with God very well, 
But it's not as important how we start as how we finish. And the cool thing is, for some of you, you've given me this testimony. Jeff, I, I lived the first half of my life, and man, it was without God and stuff. But when I found God, I want to finish the rest of my life with God, and I want to finish well. God bless you. And may you finish well. Because let's remember that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a long-distance marathon, and we are in for the long haul. And God wants us to learn to live the way of faith and the way of depending on his power so that whatever obstacles we meet in life, we have the strength and power from him to be able to meet those and continue to move on and persevere and endure instead of allowing those things to defeat and discourage us over a long period of time. I don't want to go into all the sordid details, but beginning in chapter 8, verse 22... After Gideon's great victory, the men of Israel say to Gideon, rule over us. You're the man. We want you to be king. And Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, which sounds really good. But then if you read the rest of the passage, he lives like a king, folks. He lives like a king. His lips may be saying one thing, but his life is saying another. And there's a principle out of this passage, too, that I wrote down was this. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Because sometimes we are most vulnerable, even as Christians, after victory. You know, before the battle, man, we're on our knees and, and we're focused and, and we know what we're dealing with. And we've got to go in and we're, we're laser beaming it and we're, you know, it's all there. But then after the victory, it's almost like we get a little lax and get a little complacent and all of that. And we're not quite as spiritually alert as we should be. And all of a sudden, that's when Satan can attack, when our flesh can rise up in pride. And when even though this great victory has been done, then we see a great fall and great defeat. How often, even in our country this past year, have we seen men and women raised up to a level of power and status and then brought back down because they couldn't handle the victory. They couldn't handle where they were brought to. Maybe that's why God spends so much time with Joseph before he elevated Joseph. Maybe that's why God spends so much time working on us before he elevates us to certain positions because he needs to know that He can trust us. Trust us not to begin to think that we're doing it, but that we still have to do it in him and with his power. You'll also notice that here's what Gideon says. He he makes a request in verse 24. I want you to take all these earrings of plunder. Let's melt it down and let's make this ephod out of it. An an ephod was a, a priestly garment. And and to make, again, a long story short, what ends up happening is that this ephod that Gideon suggests that they make ends up becoming an idol that thrusts the people of Israel back into idolatry. In verse 27, so Gideon used all this to make an ephod, which he put in his hometown. All the Israelites prostituted themselves to it by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. He didn't ask God whether he should make the ephod or not. 
He didn't consult God about the wisdom of this decision or choice. It was almost like he began to live on his own. It was like, okay, I can see what God can do through me. And now it was almost like we take a leave of our senses and go, now I can start to do this on my own. And it was like, no, fall flat on my face. And that's exactly what Gideon does. Not only that, but like a lot of guys, especially in the Old Testament, they had all these wives and concubines. And can I just say, the Bible talks about it, but never approves of it. In fact, the Bible does just the opposite. Anybody who had more than one wife or any concubine, it always come back to bring them unbelievable pain in their life. And Gideon is going to be no different. Because notice in verse 30 of Judges chapter 8, Gideon fathered 70 sons through his many wives. I could say a lot, but we'll go on. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also gave him a son whose name was Abimelech. And Gideon, son of Joash, died at a very old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash, located in Ophrah of the Abiz rites. And the Bible does say that the whole time that Gideon was alive, in verse 28, the land had rest for 40 years during Gideon's time. I want to point this out because this is significant in the book of Judges. This is the last time in the book of Judges you will hear of the land experiencing rest. Remember, the nation continues to decline and go down and down and down spiritually. And even though God raises up these deliverers and they come to their senses for a time, each succeeding generation continues to do more wickedness than the one before it. And they continue to go down and down and down to the point where there's no peace for the nation of Israel. Gideon, an enigma, isn't he? Like a lot of Bible characters. And that's why God doesn't want us to put Bible characters on a platform or on a pedestal any more than he wants us to put other human beings on a platform or a pedestal. Because they're far from what they should be a lot of times. But it does show that God can use them. And that God will use them as long as they're following him. But there does come that point where I believe in Gideon's life, there came a point after the victories where he began to live a very sloppy life with God. And he began to disobey a lot of the principles that God had laid down for the nation of Israel, and he paid the price for it. And the reason I say that is because that one little verse about his concubine having a son whose name was Abimelech, that son is going to come back to haunt Gideon. And Gideon's ancestors for many, many decades to come and bring that family much pain. Folks, God is teaching us tonight about the importance of totally relying on Him. And when we do, nothing is impossible. I want to leave you with two verses tonight from the New Testament. I want you to first go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We're talking about the fact that it's tough to end well. That doesn't mean it's impossible to end well. I hope it's your desire tonight 
to end well. To be like a Paul who can say at the end of his life, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. And notice the encouragement that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 1.8 when he says of God, He will also strengthen you to the end. See, whatever strength you and I need to get to the end, to the finish line, to the goal, to when we die or see Jesus or are raptured, whatever the end looks like for us, God will give us all the strength we need to the end. His power will be with us to the end. And then back in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, the very last verse of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 20, not only is God's power with us to the end, but God promises us His presence will be with us to the end, when at the end of the great commission that Jesus gave to His followers, He says in verse 20, I want you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. I don't know about you, but if I know that God's power is with me to the end and that God's presence is with me to the end, then I know that whatever I'm going to face between now and the end, I can deal with. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. God, thank you for the instruction of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the reminders of where our real strength comes from. Our real strength doesn't come from within ourselves. Our real strength doesn't come from others or anything earthly or worldly. Our real strength comes when we get to a place where we have been stripped of all our human resources and support systems and props and where we realize that all we have is you. And we learn at that moment that you are all that we need. God, help us to even face this coming week with that truth at the forefront of our mind and life. Because, Lord, I know that there are many people right now going through very difficult times in their life. And yet, we need to look away from the circumstances And keep our eyes focused on you. Help us, Lord, not to get distracted. It's so easy to do. Help us, Lord, to continue to focus on you. On the strength that you will supply. And keep trusting in you to deliver what you said and promised you would deliver. That you will strengthen us to the end. And you will be with us to the end. So that we may end well. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you for being here. Love you. See you next week.